Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, passionate listeners. Welcome to Passion Harvest. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador, and thank you so much for making me a part of whatever you are doing right now. I have a very, very exciting guest today, and I can't wait to dive right in. If you like this episode, please do subscribe. My guest today, and I'm sure you know who he is, Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Eben Alexander spent over 25 years as an academic neurosurgeon. Over those years, he personally dealt with hundreds of patients suffering from severe alterations in their level of consciousness. Many of those patients were rendered comatose by trauma, brain tumors, ruptured aneurysms, infections, or stroke. Dr. Alexander thought he had a very good idea of how the brain generates consciousness, mind, and spirit. In 2008, Dr. Alexander was driven into a coma by a rare and mysterious illness that attacked his brain. Dr. Alexander spent a week in a coma on a ventilator, his prospects for survival diminishing rapidly. On the seventh day, to the surprise of everyone, he started to awaken. Memories of his life had been completely deleted inside of the coma, yet he awoke with memories of a fantastic odyssey deep into another realm, more real than this earthly one. His journey brought key insights into the mind-body discussion and to, to our human understanding of the fundamental nature of reality. His experience clearly revealed that we are conscious in spite of our brain, that in fact consciousness is at the root of all existence. Dr. Alexander's story offers a crucial key to the understanding of reality and human consciousness in analyzing his experience, including the scientific possibilities and grand implications. He envisions a more complete reconciliation of modern science and spirituality as a natural product. Dr. Alexander has been blessed with a complete recovery that is inexplicable from the viewpoint of modern Western medicine. He has written several books, including living in a mindful universe, Proof of Heaven and the Map of Heaven. A graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Dr. Alexander received his medical degree from Duke University of Medicine. He taught neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School in Boston for 15 years and has performed over 4,000 neurological operations during his academic career. He authored and co-authored over 150 chapters and papers in peer-reviewed journals authored or edited five books on radio surgery and neurosurgery and made over 230 presentations at conferences and medical centers around the world. Wow. Since his NDE, Dr. Alexander has dedicated himself to sharing information about near-death experiences and other spiritually transformative experiences and what they teach us about consciousness and the nature of reality. He continues to promote further research on the unifying elements of science and spirituality and regularly teaches others ways to tap into our greater mind and the power of the heart to facilitate enhancement of healing relationships, creativity, guidance, and more. Wow. This is his story and this is his passion. Dr. Eben Alexander, welcome to Passion Harvest. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So... 
I mean, I've got, I've got a whole list of questions for you and I'm so excited to speak to you. If you wouldn't mind just giving a background of how um, your NDE occurred. Okay, and important to point out, I'd spent uh, the 54 years of my life before my near-death experience um, honing a fairly conventional scientific worldview. You, you gave my uh, bio there in terms of my uh, practice and mm -hmm. spending 15 years teaching at Harvard and all of that. Um, the reality was I thought I had some understanding of brain-mind consciousness, how it all worked, but uh, important to admit that modern neuroscience is really quite uh, uh, in the dark about consciousness and, and what it truly is. So there's plenty of room for uh, growth. And um, in fact, what I, I had struggled with, um, I wanted to believe everything I'd been taught in my Methodist church growing up in North Carolina. Um, and yet, uh, all those years teaching neurosurgery, operating on patients, I was having great difficulty understanding how conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. Uh, that was a real mystery to me. And that's why my coma experience in 2008 was such a gift. Uh, it all started early in the morning, uh, November 10th, 2008, severe back pain, severe headache. Uh, within about uh, two and a half, three hours of symptom onset, I was having grand mal seizures and was uh, gone from this world. <clears throat> That's when my family was very alarmed, called the EMTs to come to our house, uh, and they uh, took me to the Lynchburg General Hospital emergency room where uh, I was found to have a severe gram-negative bacterial meningitis. Lumbar puncture was done and out came thick white pus under pressure. My neurologic exams already showed a tremendous damage to my neocortex and brainstem, even there in the uh, emergency room. Uh, and in fact, um, uh, by the next day, they found out it was E. coli, which E. coli meningitis almost always happens in newborns. It's very rare beyond the age of three months. So my doctors had that deep mystery. How in the world did I get this particular kind of bacterial meningitis? And it was a devastating case. Uh, in fact, uh, my medical records have recently been reviewed uh, by three physicians who were fascinated by my recovery. Um, they'd never heard of a case of such severe meningoencephalitis where the patient went to a full recovery. Uh, and that's why they studied my case. They spent about two years going through it. And in fact, they could go a lot deeper than I did before I wrote Proof of Heaven. So uh, their case report that came out in September of 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases uh, is a very important uh, documentation of my illness and the shocking nature of this illness you know, for one thing, how could a brain so uh, besieged uh, with all eight lobes of the neocortex involved, as my CT and MRI scan showed, how could such a patient come back completely? I mean, I, when I woke up in the ICU bed, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I had no idea who my loved ones at the bedside even were. All I knew at that moment was what I'd just been through. I had no personal memories of Evan Alexander's life. All of that came back over uh, days and weeks. Uh, and in fact, by two months out, everything had come back. That was the big mystery is how could all those memories just be so uh, devastated, uh, eliminated, and then over two months, every bit of it came back to me even better than many of those memories had been before uh, my coma, uh, more complete. And that, that part was really shocking. Turns out that week, uh, as I tell in the book, Proof of Heaven, involved an extraordinary spiritual experience. And, and the one reason the neuroscientific community is so shocked by all this, uh, when you're 
when you read that case report, it just, there's no way for any kind of a dream or hallucination or drug effect or confabulation to occur when your entire neocortex is that damaged. And uh, the evidence was very clear from my neurologic exams that I had extensive damage to the neocortex. Um, and that to me was the deep mystery. And that's what has driven my almost 12 Search. years now of research to try and make sense of it all. Now, just to briefly uh, summarize for your audience, what I remembered deep in that coma all began in what I call the earthworm's eye view, very primitive course, uh, unresponsive realm, like being in dirty jello. But I was rescued from that by this slowly spinning white light that opened up like a portal, of a rip in the fabric of that ugly earthworm eye view and led up into this brilliant ultra-real gateway valley that had many earth-like features, but also many profound spiritual features. For example, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. There were millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these formations over this absolutely gorgeous meadow uh, that was rich with life and, and fertility and no sign whatsoever of any decay or death. Uh, and in that lovely meadow, there were thousands of beings dancing. Uh, and when I wrote it all up in the weeks after my coma, I described them as souls between lives. All that dancing oh, and joy beautiful. and merriment was being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic choirs that were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness. Uh, this incredible festivity going on below us was being fueled by those angelic choirs. And I was not alone in my witnessing of this. There was a beautiful young woman beside me on the butterfly wing. And of course, those who have read Proof of Heaven realized just how crucial she was in the coming months. Um, because four months after my coma, I received a picture uh, from my birth family. I was adopted. Uh, and all this story is told in detail in Proof of Heaven, so I'm not going to tell it all here and now. Everyone but has to get The reality is, uh, in that, uh, um, that beautiful woman on the butterfly wing was an absolutely essential clue to the nature of my journey and the reality of it. And all that is fully explained in the book. Now, it turns out that in that beautiful Gateway Valley, she gave me what I believe is the ultimate message that I was to bring back to this world. And it's what I encourage every soul that I encounter to know deeply from my experience. And that is you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You will be taken care of. You have nothing to fear. And I cannot tell you how comforting and uh, totally affirming that message was to me. Now, she never said those words, but they came to me telepathically. Uh, and I remember her beautiful face. I mean, it's, it's fresh in my memory right now as if it happened this morning. Uh, this beautiful, uh, uh, loving face, uh, broad smile, high cheekbones, sparkling blue eyes, soft brown hair. And she was dressed in the same kind of simple peasant garb as all of those beings down dancing in the meadow down below. But uh, beautiful colors uh, to, to these garments. And uh, I remember her, her giving me that reassuring message. And that's when I had the sensation of the soft summer breeze blowing through as I was a speck of awareness on the butterfly wing in this brilliant ultra real valley. Um, and that, that breeze was my awareness of the divine. That was my first knowing of that God force, pure love uh, coming through that was all of this scene was explained by this beautiful loving presence. And uh, in fact, what I then saw was our four dimensional space time, these lower aspects of earth time. And then that spiritual realm with all those spiritual beings between lives all of that, a different ordering of causality, what I call deep time, which is not so much slave to earth time. Earth time 
is what allows for our journeys to unfold here. But this is a stage setter. And in many ways, it's just set up uh, to give us a stage on which these dramas unfold. Uh, and yet in that realm, what I witnessed from that uh, Gateway Valley was that those beautiful angelic choirs, um, that music provided yet another portal into higher and higher levels. And all of that stuff I'd witnessed so far collapsing down <clears throat> until I entered what I call the core, infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with the divine love of that healing God force. And um, uh, in that beautiful gateway valley, uh, that was part of eternity, infinity, <clears throat> and um, uh, this beautiful, brilliant orb of light that I felt was there as a, a translator, a teacher. Uh, and uh, that, all of that was, was part of the deeper lessons. But then interestingly enough, what would happen is I would tumble back down from that core realm, the sanctum sanctorum of the divine, all the way back into that earthworm eye view, that primitive place where it all began. But very rapidly, I, I, I came to find that by recalling the musical notes of the melody, uh, I could conjure up that portal that led me up into that ultra real valley. And I made several passages through these multiple layers of the spiritual realm before I finally realized that what they told me in that core, which was you're not here to stay, will teach, teach you many things, um, was, was very true because I was no longer allowed back up there by remembering musical notes, the melody down in that earthworm eye view. There came a point where it no longer conjured up that beautiful pathway up into the higher realms. And uh, that was when I witnessed thousands of beings going off into the distance around me, heads uh, down, murmuring energy coming from them. I could not understand any of the words, but it was giving me the very same comfort and joy and bliss and reassurance of my spiritual home that I'd encountered at those higher levels before, the, the gateway valley and the core realm. And yet now I was experiencing it down in this uh, kind of lowly earth for my view. And it was the power of prayer. That's what I labeled it in my writings early on, that I could sense beings praying for my, for my safe passage, but I still had no idea what that meant. Passage where? Uh, and that's when I saw six faces emerging out of the muck. Um, five of them were of people who were physically present in the ICU room, my last 24 hours of coma. That's very important because those provided veridical time anchors to prove that the vast majority of the coma journey uh, that I had experienced that seemed to go for months or years, but had to happen within seven Earth days, that in fact, most of that journey happened between days one and five. And the interesting thing about that is it's that case report shows, and anybody can access that medical case report. If you go to ebenalexander.com, look on my blog pages in September 2018, I, I posted a blog about that medical case report confirming the uh, uh, facts of my medical records, and that is where um, I think it, it's, uh, it's so validating because of all the evidence they show for how this could not have happened. According to our tenets of modern neuroscience, my brain should have been completely inactivated. Um, and of course, I've, as I said, I've spent those 12 years since that time working with scientists around the world who are interested in consciousness. And in so many people believe that this is a you know, discussion of science versus religion or science yeah. versus spirituality. And yet, in fact, near-death experiences and so many other examples of non-local consciousness are the extraordinary evidence 
of scientific evidence that we're spiritual beings in a spiritual universe. And this has tremendous impact on how we live these lives. And that's why I think proof of heaven has opened the eyes of many and certainly many in the scientific and medical profession uh, to the reality of these experiences. And now many scientists around the world, for example, GalileoCommission.org, if people go there, they'll, they'll find, uh, I'm one of the 100 plus scientific advisors on that, uh, on that scientific group studying consciousness. And we're all in for an extraordinary journey of discovery, um, especially when you realize that science is really leading the way in understanding all this. But it's not our conventional materialist science that actually should have died off 80 years ago. Wow. What an experience. And it couldn't have happened more immaculately to you because there's no way you could have consciousness based on your meningitis. So, you know, obviously a, a man of great science, it's, it's proof really that you couldn't have had these conscious memories. Well, it's, it's, it's a very profound piece of evidence that consciousness is not created by the brain. Mm. Uh, and the good news is there, the scientific community has risen to that challenge um, for years now, for decades, uh, explaining it more that the brain is a filter, but the consciousness itself is primordial. It's something that actually pre-exists the Big Bang in the physical universe. But there's a layer of, of kind of assimilation and integration of information in the universe that is uh, known in quantum physics as kind of the mental universe. Uh, and that's what humans, any sentient being in the universe has access to that. So our brain serves as a filter that allows us to access consciousness. But the mistake is believing that the physical brain creates consciousness out of physical matter because only the physical world exists. That's the falsehood uh, because there's much more to this universe than just the physical world. Uh, and in fact, in, in so many ways, the physical world only emerges and is organized from the realm of the mental, from the mental universe. Uh, and, and I think mid 20th century science was very confused about this because they thought human consciousness had to evolve before it could participate in any way with the universe, as opposed to realizing as many of the scientists today uh, understand, and is certainly we discuss in our newest book in Living in a Mind. Congratulations, by the way. On the new well, thank book. you. But, but uh, what we discuss there is this whole idea of uh, objective idealism, that, uh, that consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe. And it makes explaining all these things like an afterlife and reincarnation and so many other mysteries of non-local consciousness, telepathy, precognition, remote viewing, out-of-body experiences, past life memories in children, suggestion of reincarnation, um, shared death and near-death experiences, all of these things start to make far more sense when you realize that uh, you know, objective idealism gives us a working philosophical model that actually makes sense and explains every bit of this. And the good news for human beings is it greatly expands your kind of sphere of influence of interacting with the universe and having influence on the universe, beginning with your health, which is the most important and obvious source of, of how we can interact with the universe. Wow. So, okay. Are you going to keep us in suspense about the woman that was guiding you? Well, it would be a spoiler alert. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really how the book Proof of Heaven comes to an end. And, and to me, it's, it's an, an astonishing uh, kind of realization. Uh, I mean, what I can tell your reading audience is it has a lot to do with the fact that I was adopted and only met my birth family uh, a year or so before my coma. 
Uh, they'd been uh, absent from my life since I was just days old. Uh, and yet uh, I had a full blown uh, complete family. My, I never suspected my, my birth parents uh, were together. I always knew in my earlier life that my birth mother was out there, but I thought my birth father had just left the scene. All the information I had suggested that much. And that's, I, I actually found out differently uh, in the year 2000 in a phone call. That would have been uh, an emotional experience. I mean, was I'm not adopted, but yes. And again, if people want to know that story, it's told in full and rich detail in the book Proof of Heaven. But uh, to cut to the chase, uh, the extraordinary thing is the, the beautiful guardian angel that I saw on my journey. Uh, and I'd never read the near-death experience literature before. You know, I always thought it was just nonsense. It was just hallucinations of the dying And now look at you, you're just the, the ambassador now, for <laughs> near-death experiences. <laughs> well, I mean, when you've been there, it's, it, uh, you know, luckily there are millions of others on this planet who have had near-death experiences. And I get to run into them all the time in my talks. People come out and they'll share something with me. And they often say, I've never told anybody this before, but... And then they'll share a story of an after-death communication or a deathbed vision or a shared death experience. Those are really stunning. They're exactly like near-death experiences, but they happen to people who are generally physiologically perfectly healthy. Because uh, in a shared death experience, what happens is the departing soul, say of uh, your mother, who may be a thousand miles away, leaving yeah. this physical plane, she comes through you on the way out. She may even take uh -huh. your soul along on the journey even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review of hers before your bystander soul comes back, shocked wow. and amazed at the experience. And, you know, for every um, 20 near-death experiences I, I hear while I'm traveling and giving talks, there'll be about one shared death experience that crops up that absolutely demands your attention because it happens in somebody's, you know, all those pseudo explanations of medical doctors and scientists saying, oh, it's oxygen tension of the brain, uh, CO2 levels, you know, as you die, the brain is traumatized and goes through all this craziness, including those hallucinations. Well, no, not at all. <laughs> Shared death experiences completely defy that simplistic, uh, you know, irrelevant uh, non-answer to the question. Uh, these are about a spiritual realm that has a tremendous amount of similarity when you study these accounts by the hundreds and thousands. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of overlap uh, and kind of deep, profound understanding. Once you realize that a destination like the spiritual realms is not like just, you know, going to um, Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and everybody gets exactly the same exposure. It's more like if we were all teleported to France or say to Paris, you know, for 12 hours and then teleported back, we'd all have different experiences. And I promise you these spiritual realms are far, far bigger, grander, and more versatile than Paris. But they have enough similarities when you meet enough people uh, you start who have had these experiences, you realize those similarities are pointing to a realm that's just like this realm. You know, it, it has commonalities, things we can expect and kind of understand and explain. And in fact, as a scientist, one of my biggest and most profound interests is to try and come up with drivers uh, to help get people into meditative states where they can experience you know, NDEs. People use things like ayahuasca, certain psychedelic drugs, and those are, they basically are glimpsing the same realm as the realm of NDEs, but they're forcing you to do it through a keyhole. When you have an NDE, 
wham, you're up in the penthouse suite getting this extraordinary version of reality that is there for you and your soul growth. If you try and do it with ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD, uh, you know, if you do it with a proper spiritual setting, you can get more power out of it. But if you're just doing it, you know, as a recreational drug user thinking you're going to get uh, these extraordinary NDE visions, you know, people who do uh, DMT, the active principle in, in ayahuasca, 5-methoxy-DMT, things like that, uh, that literally gives you a glimpse that's teeny tiny little smidge of what is actually there. And in fact, what uh, Karen Newell, my partner, co-author uh, of the book Living in Mindful Universe and my life partner in a lot of this work, what we do in our meditation play shops is try and help people use uh, sound, use differential frequency sound. And very specifically for those who are interested, go to sacredacoustics.com. You can learn a lot more. That's her website. Uh, but we use those, those sounds that are primarily processed in the lower brain stem. Very different from every other sound you've ever heard, primarily processed up in the recently evolved circuits of the neocortex, acoustic cortex. These are all circuits that arose in the last one to 10 million years in primates and homo sapiens. Whereas the sounds of sacred acoustics, differential frequency, binaural beat brain entrainment, those influence a circuit down in the lower brain stem, the superior olivary nucleus complex, that arose more than 300 million years ago. And from my point of view, it's by disrupting consciousness at such a primitive level in the lower brainstem, as opposed to the psychedelic drugs, which are only influencing that most superficial level of the neocortex. Um, that's where I believe that uh, the sound, sacred acoustics, can be far more powerful at giving people uh, spiritually advanced uh, and enlightening journeys than the psychedelic drugs. And in fact, that very topic was addressed by Christopher Bache, B-A-C-H-E, in a book he wrote, I think about uh, 15, 20 years ago called Dark Night, Early Dawn. And he had a lot of experience with high-dose LSD for spiritual growth, but he also had used uh, a fairly primitive form of binaural beats. It was what was available to Robert Monroe, Bob Monroe, uh, doing his work in out-of-body experiences back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and he used differential frequency brain entrainment of a fairly primitive form uh, to get, you know, out-of-body experiences to occur. And Karen and I use sacred acoustics, which is something she developed with her business partner, Kevin Cossey, uh, in what I consider to be more powerful forms of binaural uh, beat brainwave entrainment. And for me, that and we, we talk in Living in Mindful Universe a lot about how uh, people can use that for journeying and for uh, discovery and basically uh, coming to know much more about those spiritual realms before you leave the physical brain and body, uh, like at the time of death or having a near-death experience. You've just answered all of my questions. I've got nothing. No, I've got a few more questions. Oh, no. I'm sure you have more. I have great faith that you have. In fact, I looked through your question list and I know you have a lot more there. I'm just trying to compartmentalize my answers to help in the answering of your questions. Thank you very much. This, so I just want to ask you, and I get a lot of these particular questions in regard to my near-death experience interviews. Did you consciously choose to come back to... That's a beautiful question. You know, for most of this journey, I, I, I must confess, I felt like I was in the back of the bus being driven around. It was not as if my free will was really running the show, except maybe at some parts in the core realm, but the core is so far from human experience 
uh, as to be almost uh, undefinable. It's uh, like standing on the event horizon of a black hole with one foot in the event horizon of uh, time stopped and complete eternity infinity and the other foot in the very first levels of parceling out of you know what eventually comes from that source realm of, of pure creative uh, love out into the periphery here of this uh, material world and uh, it's it's just so so difficult to put any of that into any kind of words that make sense to people but but uh, for most most of that journey I was just observing it and and feeling like I didn't have to be responsible. In fact, for most of the journey, I felt like all of this can continue or it can stop, it doesn't matter. And that gave me a certain fearlessness. Uh, and the fact that I was amnesic, that I had absolutely no memories of Evan Alexander's life, I had no words, no language, no knowledge of, of earth or humanity, none of that, it was an empty slate. Um, and that is what allowed, uh, in so many ways, such an extraordinary journey without any kind of preconceptions uh, or notions. All of it had to be put together after the fact when I came back to this world. But the experience itself was extraordinary. Now getting right back to your question though, I must confess that when I saw those faces at the end, there were six faces actually, yes. I mentioned five, but the five were people who were physically present in the ICU room. The sixth face was of uh, a good family friend, Susan Wrenches. Uh, again, that story is told fully in Proof of Heaven. Turns out that she had a long history of channeling. She would help people. She would go into a mental state where she would assist them. She'd helped a lot of people who were in coma. Uh, she was a family friend going two decades back or more. Um, and in fact, Susan uh, was uh, solicited by my family, my uh, former spouse, who was a close friend of hers, to help me in my deep coma. And so on the fourth and fifth nights of my coma, Susan uh, channeled to me from 120 miles away. And of course, wow. I, when I first woke up, I, I told of the people who were there because then I could remember, uh, put their names and faces together after I came back out of coma, it was all starting to come back to me. But I mentioned Susan and they said, well, she was the only one who wasn't physically there. But I knew she was there uh, because I could feel her presence very strongly. And they said, well, she never was physically here. She channeled to you from Chapel Hill to 120 miles away. I said, well, of course, that makes perfect sense. I knew where I had been. You don't go there physically anyway. Uh, and and uh, so that made sense. But the sixth face that I saw was actually of my 10-year-old son, Bond. Uh, and that was Sunday morning, day seven of coma. The, the, the team doctors had just held a family conference where they said, well, he started the week with a 10% chance of survival. And then on three powerful antibiotics with no sign of recovery, being on a ventilator for seven days straight, not showing any uh, real neurologic uh, return. They said, well, now he's down to a 2% chance of survival, no chance of recovery. Uh, and Bond, who was 10 years old at the time, my youngest son, was outside the room where they held that family conference and they had protected him from the worst bad news of the week, yeah. but they didn't protect him from that one. And he heard that and he came running down the hallway into um, ICU bed 10. He pulled open my eyelids, they were taped shut, as they had been for most of that week. Uh, and um, except when my pupils were checked and eye movements, things like that. He pulled open my eyes and he's pleading with me, Daddy, you're gonna be okay, Daddy, you're gonna be okay, as if somehow that would make it so. And I promise you, I did not see him with my eyes. I did not hear him with my ears. I was way too far gone from this world as my neurologic exams and everything revealed. But 
it got through and I could sense his presence and his pleading with me. And that was the first moment of terror in the entire journey. As I said, so far, none of this really mattered. I was being shown so many things, but none of it had a personal connection to Evan Alexander. That's except so beautiful. I didn't know it, but that beautiful girl on the butterfly wing, of course, was a tremendous connection uh, to, to my life back in this, this world. And that was what really did it, was when I sensed Bond's presence, even though I had no idea who he was, but I could sense this incredibly strong bond between us, a bond of love. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, 10 years earlier, we had named him Bond when he came to this world. He was, that was actually a family name on my former uh, spouse's side of the family, uh, from a patriarch of many generations back, James Bond, go figure. Uh, so anyway, Bond was his name. And uh, yes, he turned out to be my, my Bond to this earth. But it was when I saw his face pleading with me and not understanding the words, but sensing that connection, that's what drove me to come back to this world. I had to, even though I had no idea what world I was coming back to, but I knew I had to struggle and fight my way back to it. And that's what it felt like. It was an incredible struggle. I felt like the analogy I often use, it was like climbing out of a gravel pit where my body is deep down and I'm reaching up and trying to pull myself up, but every pull is just pulling more gravel in around me and I'm getting buried more and more. It, it felt like it was impossible to come back and yet my will to do so was so strong because of that sense of love for him. And that's what really compelled me to come back to this world. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up in that ICU bed and surrounded by these beings that I didn't know who they were. And I had to, had the tube in and I was struggling against the tube and, and uh, that's when they pulled it out. And my language was just beginning to come back. So anyway, uh, that's, that's what really brought me back to this world. That's so beautiful. I love that. And you already mentioned your message, but what, I mean, what is the main message you came back to this world where you talked about love and, you know, fearlessness? What, all, what? I would say all near-death experiencers, 95% or better of them, come back with the same message. We are here to love each other. They have witnessed, when you get into that um, gateway valley and the core realm and, and bathe in that ocean of pure love where your individuality is, is now gone. In fact, the life of you that is so commonly described in near-death experiences and has been going back at least 2,400 years to the time of Plato, who wrote about the life of you reported by Armenian soldier Ur killed in battle. Well, the life of you is a beautiful example of non-self, of how we're all really in this together. In fact, the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, mm -hmm. which is in every uh, belief system in, in the world and always has been, you know, that treating others uh, kindly as you would like to be treated reflects our oneness of consciousness and mind. And because in deep NDEs, as we become one with that God force, uh, it's an extraordinary uh, sense of the binding force of love. And the life review, interestingly enough, you know, th that old saying of your life flashing before your eyes is yeah. something that people experience not from their own perspective, but really more from the perspective of those around them who were impacted by their actions and even their thoughts in their lifetime. So a life review, if you've handed out a lot of pain and suffering to someone else, the life review is not going to feel very good because you'll be on the business end of that. Now you have to receive all that, see what it feels like. And then that helps you uh, in, in kind of in that realm of that infinitely loving God force where really any kind of egotistical, greedy, self-serving stuff looks very bad. So 
uh, you know, in essence, the life review is kind of teaching us to be there to take care of each other uh, and to love ourselves. I mean, really, I think I came back from it all seeing that most of the world's problems were because we don't even love ourselves enough. Yeah, when well, they go, that, they go hand in hand, I guess. But are we judged? Hand in hand. Are we judged in the life review? Is this a judgment like we think really of the traditional? Really higher soul. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, the soul group is there. We're there with our loved ones who have already passed. But all, anything that you might call judgment is actually just witnessing those actions in the life review, feeling the emotional power of it on others around you, um, and then you know, drawing your conclusions. And uh, um, it, it generally has an effect of, of making us kinder and gentler and more loving. And that's what happens to near-death experiencers when they come back to this world. I've heard, for example, of a, like of a hitman who had when he was going to do a hit, he was going to murder somebody and he was intervened upon by spiritual energies. And he basically kind of went through a life review then and there where he, re he had an NDE and came back to this world realizing, no, this is totally wrong. So it's just <laughs> in, that, in that loving yeah. realm. And remember our ego, you know, so many of us identify with a little voice in our head, that running stream of thoughts. Important to see that is nothing more than your annoying roommate. I love how Michael Singer puts it in his book, The Untethered Soul. He calls that running stream of consciousness in our heads. You know, many of us think that's who we are. We'll it's know the it's story not. that we create. It's a story we create and it's not who we are. And the deep, profound mystery of consciousness from a scientific philosophical viewpoint is not that silly little voice in the head. That's a parlor trick. You know, as a neurosurgeon, I can explain to you how that originates in this little of, you know, two cc's of brain tissue in the dominant temporal lobe in Wernicke's area, where we put together all of our notions of relationships, self, non-self, uh, all the, the notions of causal effect and, and, and um, relationships. Every bit of that, uh, in many ways, is put together in this tiny little uh, part of our linguistic brain. That's the first thing you let go of in meditation. That's one of the things that Karen and I teach is to get involved in the deep and profound mystery of the awareness and identify with the observer. That is where the power lies. That's the part of us that actually expands tremendously when we leave the physical body and brain at the time of death. Uh, and that expanded self uh, is, uh, is not your ego and it's something far greater. It's your higher soul. And that's part of what you reunite with to go through this life review, reunite with souls of departed loved ones, and plan the next incarnations because you really cannot make any sense of any of this if you go by the myth that we have one birth to death incarnation and that's it. That's the only uh, grounds on which your soul can operate. No, to actually grow as a soul to oneness with the divine takes many lifetimes. Uh, and in fact, a litmus test of how far advanced the soul is might be how self-absorbed they are. So an early soul that's just beginning this process would be very egotistical, narcissistic, um, you know, self-focused. Uh, but then as souls become more and more advanced, they get to kind of a Mother Teresa stage or a Martin Luther King stage where they're a very advanced soul that is there really to help others, take care of others, uh, go for the, the higher good of all is their main focus and no focus on kind of self and ego and its advances because really we're all in this together and that's what modern consciousness 
consciousness studies are showing very strongly, no matter what direction you're coming from, whether it's quantum physics, which shows the primacy of mind uh, in the universe, or it's a neuroscience of consciousness up against the wall of what's called the hard problem of consciousness, which is just uh, the impossibility of trying to pretend that you can take a physical thing like the brain and fully explain conscious experience from it. You cannot. They're completely different categories of things uh, that, that have some overlap in how they operate. Uh, but no, the brain is not the cause of consciousness and there's much more to this universe. There's also philosophy of mind and what's called um, the uh, subject binding problem, the, the fact, the kind of unification of consciousness. There's also parapsychology, all the findings of non-local consciousness, uh, telepathy. Just read Guy Leon Playfair's book on twin telepathy. You'll never doubt the reality of telepathy again. Uh, precognition, look at Daryl Bim's work on how we can know the future and not just his early experiments, but also the, the meta-analysis that's been more recently performed showing this extraordinary capability of our, um, that we can in many ways know the future. And that brings up all the questions of free will versus predeterminism. But I think the deeper you get into consciousness studies and kind of a deeper modern understanding of it, the more it appears that free will is absolutely alive and well. Uh, and any kind of notion of predeterminism is uh, a kind of a misguided interpretation of the data. But to understand that also accepts that deja vu uh, and uh, precognition are very real effects because we in many ways create the future. It's kind of our higher soul uh, getting involved. But um, Yes, uh, you know, I, I completely awesome. agree with that statement, but there's, more, uh, there's a more likelihood of certain um, events to unfold in the future. Obviously, we well, have free will, but... Well, but, but I would say it actually gets back to our question earlier about uh, kind of the life review and the higher soul. And, and uh, I mentioned this business of planning the next incarnation. Well, those next incarnations do have certain, what I would say are generally hardships that are laid out uh, as a possible pathway of discovery. And our free will in many ways is how we respond to those hardships. Now, of course, as you go through a life pathway, the pathway will change depending on the choices. But, uh, you know, our higher soul and soul group plan out kind of the, the, the uh, possible pathways for soul growth uh, in the next incarnation. And, and I believe that is something that is very active. But I would say that is the level at which free will gets involved, is how we, uh, how we kind of accept and, and define ourselves in relation to those challenges and hardships. And certainly injury and illness uh, are the kind of hurdles I'm talking about. But I would say that uh, recovering love of self and love of others and manifesting that in all of our choices that we make in the face of the hardships is the most efficient pathway of growth as souls uh, here in this world trying to grow into the souls we came here to be. But ultimately remember that it all has to do with love and of caring for others, showing kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness, and of course, never forget gratitude for every breath in this existence is a beautiful gift. And I've come back to look on my life, and that includes uh, a lot of the hardships and difficulties uh, as being great gifts. I mean, certainly my meningitis was an extraordinary gift. Do you uh, mention that, you, you know, you were very grateful for that? 
And is that why, I mean, why, I get this question as well all the time, why do we have to come back? To, if, if, if the other world is so fabulous or the other worlds, why well, do we have to come back? We don't get any growth there. The, the, you know, between lives is, uh, that's where we go through life reviews, reunite with the higher soul uh, and soul groups and plan those next incarnations. But we don't, uh, we don't really make any progress there. The progress is made down here. But when we come here, we're going to be temporarily dumbed down. There's program forgetting. You know, we have to work to actually remember between lives and past lives. But there's this whole world of transpersonal psychology that has opened up over the last five or six decades, thanks to the work of brilliant clinical investigators like Dr. Stan Groth, Dr. Michael Newton, Dr. Brian Weiss. These are all brilliant uh, psychiatrists who realized in, in dealing with their, their troubled patients that often the answers to the deepest questions about trying to make them better had to do with realizing through hypnotic regression, uh, through dreams that they may have had, uh, other visions and, and kind of uh, epiphanies, that they had lived previous lifetimes. And that in fact, their, this lifetime, the challenges had been kind of set up from prior lifetimes. And you can make much better sense of it if you have access to that kind of information. The world of transpersonal psychology now involves hundreds of thousands of patients who have benefited from this kind of broader view of yeah. who we are. You know, let's get rid of this silly little materialist myth that we are born and die one incarnation, that's it. Brain creates consciousness, that's it. No, those are falsehoods that the modern world of uh, investigating human experience is revealing uh, do not help us in kind of our journeys as human beings into understanding more of who we are, why we're here, where all this is going, and what can we do to more effectively grow as souls. Uh, so this is really about a tremendous awakening for our entire culture and society uh, to a much greater sense. I mean, in fact, the, it's very the, exciting, actually. It is the conventional neuroscience that I worship before my coma, and I do not use that word lightly. <laughs> But often that materialist neuroscience would try and convince you that you're not even conscious. It's just, uh, you know, chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the brain. They give you this illusion of consciousness. But as Daniel Dennett, a proponent of such thinking, would put it, you know, none of us are conscious. We're all zombies. Well, I think Dennett might be a zombie, but not so true for the rest of us. And I think it's waking up to this kind of bigger version of self that can be so uh, extraordinary healing for us. Um, you know, in so many ways, placebo effect is a beautiful example of how medical science for decades, if not centuries, really, uh, has admitted the power of a patient's beliefs to help them get better. And this is not just about a sugar pill, you know, getting rid of a headache. If you go to noetics.org, the Institute of Noetic wow. website, uh, science's website, and uh, put in the search term spontaneous remission, uh, you'll find there a book that they published in the mid-1990s. It's not in print now, but you can download the entire thing for free from their website. And uh, they have more than 3,500 cases there of spontaneous remission of things like cancers, infections, even congenital deformities and, and uh, uh, degenerative diseases, things like that, where people went far beyond our materialist science and modern medical healing uh, in their way of being able to completely reverse certain illnesses. So, so much think. information. And, you know, for anyone that's listening or watching, I'm going to put all your information in the show notes that you've mentioned during the show. I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned Mother Teresa and your soul grows and evolves. 
is there an end point when we're enlightened? I mean, that's an unusual term, but that we stop coming back? Well, I actually think what is, I, I would like, I like to look at uh, Pierre Terard de Chardin uh, and his beautiful view uh, in his book, The Phenomenon of Man. It was written in the mid, mid 1950s. Uh, he was a French Jesuit priest, but also a paleontologist. So he was scientifically trained, but also spiritual. And he wrote this beautiful book where he took the, the, the versions of uh, evolution at that time. You know, they were just really working out Darwinian evolution mm -hmm. and biological systems on Earth. But he took it to a whole new level and basically uh, proposed that all of consciousness throughout the universe was in the process of evolving. And I believe that is absolutely right on the money. I, I really uh, buy into his kind of interpretation and understanding of this. And I believe that all of consciousness is evolving. And, you know, in many ways you could say, well, just like they say all politics is local, well, like, likewise, um, all evolution of consciousness throughout the universe. And I would say that that is a reasonable purpose for this universe to exist, is for consciousness to evolve. All of that is nothing more than individual sentient beings growing more fully into the souls they came here to be. And so in that sense, what I feel is going on here is we're all participating in the evolution of all of sentience and consciousness. But as that happens with all of humanity, what ha it all evolves to next levels and next levels. And we, we have no idea, no way of knowing what all is involved in those future kind of progressions right. in consciousness towards oneness with the divine. I believe that that is what it is always about, though. It's kind of the self-discovery of the universe. People often postulate that, you know, in an NDE, you would have infinite knowledge of the universe when you're in those poor realms. Well, I think you have access to uh, incredible knowledge, but not necessarily to an endpoint of where it's all going. Because yes, because we always like a beginning and an end. <laughs> it's not like, you know, there's some grand mind there that knows the big answer, like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the answer was 42. Well, no. Uh, there's a far more profound answer that we're going for, but it involves this process of all of us evolving and contributing to that evolution of consciousness. And maybe there is no endpoint. Well, it could just be that uh, the creator of this beautiful, uh, wonderful universe of ours, if there is such a creator, uh, and I think there certainly is a kind of a co-creative um, uh, mental force, mental layer of the universe that's very actively involved in every bit of this. That's what we talk about in Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, but it, it's, um, I love how uh, often uh, Raymond Moody, uh, who's a good friend of ours, we presented with him many a time, he's the one who kind of coined the phrase uh, near-death experience in his 1975 book, uh, uh, Life, Life After Life. I love how he, he answers this question in a way, uh, he says, uh, Elie Wiesel, um, you know, who uh, a great uh, rabbinical uh, scholar uh, out in California, who was a Holocaust survivor, uh, when asked about, you know, why all the suffering and misery in the world, he said, God loves story. And I know Raymond Moody loves to quote Elie Wiesel with that. God loves story. In other words, the creator uh, loves being part of the story, uh, the evolution of, of all of this, of what's happening in this universe. Uh, and in many ways, you know, it's interesting, the modern scientific study of consciousness from all those different directions, quantum physics, neuroscience, philosophy of mind, parapsychology, every bit of it, 
all is directed towards this notion of one mind. It's suggesting that we're all part of this one consciousness. And from my experience, and as I explain it, living in a mindful universe, that is that God consciousness. In fact, I came to realize over the last decade of, of trying to understand all this, that that God consciousness is something we become one with in the deepest aspects of those between lives journeys. Uh, it's the very source of our conscious awareness. So in many ways, we're never ever separate from that God and never could be. Uh, there's apparent darkness and apparent evil, but those are just the absence of the light and love. And the interesting thing again, is from my journey, it was very apparent, this is not a battle between good and evil, where there are uh, equal armies and that someday the forces of evil might yeah. uh, hold sway in the universe. No, oh, the apparent darkness and evil is just the absence of the light and love. But the light and love have infinite power to dispel the darkness and evil. Uh, and that's why near-death experiences don't come back where you got half of them talking about, oh my God, the, the hellish stuff is just... Uh, Forget about that they talk or, about the beauty and the incredible love. You know, you go to hellish NDEs, or you go to, for example, writings about um, uh, hospice workers in prison, like in the Attica State Prison, um, uh, uh, where they often are, serve as hospice workers for fellow prisoners who are rapists and murderers, etc. Mm -hmm. And what happens is their deathbed visions, they have great uh, witnessing of the beauty of that love. And, you know, any kind of life review that might be shared there can, can be a regret over harm, ever harming others. But the overall dominant lesson is of this beautiful, loving force and that we're all really here to take care of each other. And when that comes from, you know, people on their deathbed in a, in a prison for um, murderers and rapists and showing you the very same thing. Now, it's, it's not as if they get off scot-free because, yes, they are feeling the, the horrific pain that they've caused others. And that influences your life review and it can make that process very, you know, it's difficult because you have to face the business end of that. Yeah. But it's because the deepest lesson of this and what uh, near-death experiencers will tell you in, in big numbers is, is the fact that we really are here together. We're sharing that one consciousness and we're really here to love each other, kindness, compassion. These are deep and profound lessons that you know, seekers, prophets, mystics have been trying to teach us for thousands of years. The near-death experience community is not equivocal on this. They really all come back with this in, in extraordinary sense of kind of love and, and compassion and kindness. In many ways, uh, it's unlike the kind of erasing that happens uh, in young children. You know, if you talk to Jim Tucker or Ian Stevenson, the physicians who at University of Virginia for more than six decades have investigated past life memories in children and to date have uncovered more than 2,500 cases uh, where re reincarnation is the best answer. Uh, and you talk to them and they say, well, those memories start disappearing at age five or six. Yeah. So you've got to talk to the children when they're very young, just like we can't remember our dreams. You know, we know that dreams and sleep are very important to live. If, if, you're prevented from dreaming and sleeping from a, for a week or two, it'll kill you. It's very deadly. And yet we don't generally remember the content of our dreams. They can be very profound. They're often the meeting ground where we encounter souls of departed loved ones, for example, to tell us we need to go get a mammogram if we have breast cancer or something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, the dream world uh, is, uh, has a lot of overlap with uh, 
uh, with the world encountered in, in spiritual epiphanies and near-death experiences. And I think that is really what we're waking up to, is, is the much grander kind of vision of who we are uh, and how we're interconnected with others very deeply. That's shown to us in that life of you. Uh, but we're all part of one mind, and that mind originates in that God force. And that is a, a deep and profound truth that I think is slowly coming to this world. And now that science studying consciousness is actually supporting a lot of the narrative that I'm sharing with you today, I think that is where this world can change tremendously because we've had thousands of years for the story of prophets and mystics who had these extraordinary journeys, came back and started various religious systems. And yes, people could believe or not, they could meditate, they could pray. Some of them would be gifted with visions of the reality of these stories, some would not. But in the 1960s, doctors developed techniques to uh, um, resuscitate cardiac arrest patients. In other words, the universe was getting a little tired of that old arrangement that hadn't worked so well. Right. And now that science is studying these, we're going to be able to scientifically validate the reality of this kind of narrative of the one mind and of the love and compassion and kindness and mercy that are so much a part of our existence as souls in that spiritual part of the universe, but manifested in this world. This is part of the deep lessons we've been here to learn uh, you know, for the whole existence of humanity, and it is high time we brought it into full uh, force in this modern material world. Well, what an absolute inspiration you are to talk to. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, on a final note, is there something you'd like to talk to, express to our audience? And you've, you've given us so much food for thought, and I'm going to listen to this interview a couple of times <laughs> to get all the notes. The thing is no soul left behind. I cannot tell you how important everyone is in this. And this includes um, true open-minded skeptics. Now, I was my own worst skeptic after my coma. I was very demanding as, I love that quote from Rene Descartes, you know, if at any point in your life you view yourself as a seeker, you must at some point uh, deny any preconception or prejudice or assumption about anything about the universe. You must oh, that's question very hard. Every bit of and yeah. that's what I had to do. And, and so true open-minded skeptics are very valuable. And I promise you, if you know enough about the mind-brain discussion and all the scientific and philosophical issues involved of mind-brain and dualisms and idealism and materialism and every bit of that, the first position you reject is absolutely ridiculous, is the one of materialism. Trying to pretend that, that the physical workings of a three-pound gelatinous mass between my ears and a warm, dark bath could man manage and, and manufacture this incredible conscious experience is false. It's absolutely... Well, since you put it like that, it, that's very, a very plausible... <laughs> well, it's a dead end. Idealism yeah. is a far more realistic one where consciousness actually is the thing that exists and generates the entire emergent universe. And that's something we explain in Living in a Mindful Universe. And that is, in many ways, where the world is headed, is that kind of thinking and understanding because the materialist position yeah. is dead. Uh, it should have died 80 years ago with the advent of quantum physics. But it's, uh, you know, take and, and uh, I know, um, I think it was Max Planck, one of the founding fathers of quantum physics, that said scientific revolutions happen one funeral at a time. Well, I'm a little more optimistic than that. We don't have to wait for all of them to die off. I was a materialist a neuroscientist before, 
I had a great uh, epiphany and awakening, and I know a lot of other neuroscientists who have not had uh, a near-death experience, but they are on board with exactly what I'm talking about uh, because they realize from quantum physics and all these other lines of evidence that I've discussed that the materialist model is dead. Uh, forget about it. That notion of brain creates consciousness, exists with birth to death, nothing more. That is false, and uh, nobody's going to believe that in another five to ten years because the evidence completely contradicts it. Uh, and this is all about love, love for self, love for others, and those are the important and crucial aspects of this. This world needs to get on board with love and compassion and kindness and forgiveness, beginning with yourself because most of us do not treat ourselves like the divine, eternal, spiritual beings we are, uh, one with that God force. And we need to get back to that reality. Beautiful. And you, you answered my final question. Normally I ask about passion since this is a show about passion, but it was how can we improve our consciousness? And that was love, kindness, and forgiveness. Well, that's it. Live from the heart. Yeah. Uh, and for people who want to know more, they can go to evanalexander.com, go to sacredacoustics.com, uh, go to unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, that's a series of webinars Karen and I are giving to people now during the COVID pandemic. Um, and uh, stay in touch. Yes. We have a, a very active audience that reach us through our websites. And uh, um, we love communicating with people. We love hearing about stories of personal growth and understanding. And so um, jump in, you know, full, full, uh, frontal and enjoy every bit of it. You know, this is about awakening and coming to know who we are and how we're interrelated and what our purpose is in life. And it is a beautiful awakening indeed. Well, I just have to say what an incredible message you're bringing and sharing with the world. So thank you so much for being such an amazing ambassador, you know, for, for love and increasing consciousness it's been very nice talking it's been a pleasure thank you so much for being on passion harvest dr even alexander and we'll talk again soon sometime thank you so much thank you bye appreciate it bye-bye now (laughs) bye that is the end of our passionate episode thank you so much for listening and please subscribe leave a review tell your friends and spread the passion as always every day may you be more and more passionate.